Well, for a couple of months now, we've been going through the material, How to Read Your Bible Like a Seminary Professor is the name of the book. Uh, we've called it How to Read Your Bible Like a Seminary Student, and that's what we've been dealing with for the last s- couple of months. Tonight, we come to the final lesson in that material, How to Read Your Bible Like a Seminary Student. I want to begin <clears throat> by doing something they told us in seminary not to do. They said, don't get up in the pulpit and read something long. They don't know where I'm pastoring, so they, I'm going to go ahead. Uh, this is from the book, How to Read Your Bible Like a Seminary Professor. And uh, the author, Mark Yarbrough, is giving a kind of a, a, not a testimony, but telling a story of when he was in youth ministry. And it, when I read the story, I thought that is so true to life that I wanted you to hear it as well. He said when he was a youth minister that... Uh, <clears throat> He made a bad mistake one time when he scheduled a youth event on a Saturday night, a two-hour, they went, they had to drive two hours to get there, and it was over at 11 o'clock p.m., and so he had a two-hour drive back, and so it was after 1 p.m., or 1 a.m., when he got home, or not home, but got back to the church. He was driving the church van. He said there was a deacon in charge of the church van his name was F.M. Young. He said F.M. was a wonderful man, very servant-hearted, very giving, but he had a military background and he had a rule about the church van. It comes back the way it left here. So that means no trash, no gum, and a full tank of gas. No exceptions. So when Mark Yarbrough, the young student pastor, he said, I, w- I was a dummy. I scheduled this youth event two hours away on a Saturday night. It's after one o'clock in the morning when I get back. The last thing I want to do is to go get gas in the van. He said, but I, but I looked at the gas gauge and it was on E. And I knew I had the choice. I would either face FM tomorrow or I'd go get gas. He said, I sat there for a good good 30 seconds trying to figure out what I was going to do. He said, eventually I decided I'm going to go get the gas. So that's where we pick up the story. I pulled up to the gas pump in the church van. He's got these words in italics. I pulled up to the gas pump in the church van wearing my church t-shirt. And as things would have it, the pump was turned off. And so I had to go inside to prepay. I pulled out the church credit card and started to walk inside. He said, I just want to make sure you get the picture. Church van, church t-shirt, church credit card. He said, I, I had that whole Jesus look going on. And I proceeded to the counter. And behind the counter stood a long-haired, scraggly bearded attendant wearing a vulgar t-shirt and disheveled clothing. He even had his 1 a.m. sunglasses on. He, see, he said, seriously, he was, he was spooky. He said, let me put it this way. Think of a slightly improved late-night horror flick with zombies, and you'll get the picture of what this guy looked like. He said, the whole situation gave me the creeps. Although his back was turned to me, I could tell that he was on the phone talking to his girlfriend. Now, now get this, it's after 1 a.m. So he's at this counter, this guy is behind the counter, he's got his back to the counter, and he's talking to his girlfriend on the phone. He said, hey baby, hey baby, yeah baby, you know I love you baby. And he said he was so enthroned in the phone conversation, he was oblivious to me standing at the counter. After several patient minutes, I decided to help him take notice of me, a paying customer. With my church credit card, I started tapping on the counter, trying to get his attention. No response. Lover boy was in deep conversation with his girlfriend. 
So I tapped louder. Still no response. Now my patience was wearing thin. And I started thinking, and I'm quoting here, I have more important things to do in life than to stand here and wait for lover boy to spill his love guts to that girl. I need to sleep. What a punk. I, I have to go teach a class in the morning on Christian spirituality. This guy needs to grow up, get a real job, and quit being a drag on society. End quote. Such was the sanctified discussion in my mind. So after a loud clearing of my throat, <clears> throat> lover boy finally turned around and made eye contact with me. He quickly hung up the phone, began to walk toward the counter, and then I did something terrible, shameful, and disrespectful. With a quick flick of my wrist, I, in my church t-shirt, who had pulled up in the church van, flipped the church credit card onto the glass countertop as he walked towards me. Can't you just get the picture of that? Here this guy is ticked off, it's after 1 a.m., and he just flips the church credit card towards the counter. The next few seconds played out in slow motion. The card flipped in somersault fashion, bounced left, and hit the bottom of the tic-tac stand, dislodging the individual packets, and so began a landslide of 205 tic-tac packets cascading across the glass countertop, crashing into a container of gumballs on the right side. The gumball machine then released 2,918 gumballs from a container and sent them scattering across the tile floor, bouncing in random, motionless directions. As gumball bounced everywhere, I looked at the colossal mess and thought, ha, that'll teach him. I stormed out of the gas station, leaving the attendant to find the church credit card somewhere in the chaos of clattering gumballs and Tic Tacs. I walked back to the church van in my church t-shirt and began to fill the tank. After a few gallons poured into the tank, the Holy Spirit punched me in the gut. After closing the gas tank, I sheepishly walked towards the door, thinking of ways to validate my actions. You know, it had been a rough evening, it was a late night, like asleep, I had to be at church early in the morning, but none of my excuses would stick. I was wrong, and I knew it, and I didn't even know what to say. I was met at the door by Zombie Man in his vulgar t-shirt. For a moment, I thought he might kill me, <laughs> so I froze. Before I could say or do anything, he said, dude, I'm sorry, I'll try to do a better job next time. Those words are etched into my soul. I wear them today like an embarrassing tattoo. I rarely let anyone see them. The night attendant wasn't so vulgar after all. I was. That night, at that moment, I failed to live the Word of God. It's that last sentence I want you to hear again. That night, at that moment, I failed to live the Word of God. I'm guessing a lot of us have been there. In some form or fashion, we've had that moment and we tried to explain it, we tried to justify it, but we failed to live the Word of God. But living the Word of God is where the rubber meets the road when it comes to, to Bible study. So, if you want to read your Bible like a seminary student, it all comes down to this, this question. Will you do what the Word of God says? That is the, 
That is the heart of everything we've been talking about for the last couple of months. It all builds towards that one question. That final question. Will you do what the Word of God says? Now, I can assure you, because I have been one, that seminary students don't do that perfectly. I can assure you that they, they don't always do what the Word of God says. But I can also assure you of this. Most seminary students, if they're worth their salt, understand that that's the goal. That the goal is to every day do what the Word of God says. So, what we're going to do tonight is talk about how do we do that? <clears throat> how do we go about the process of applying the Word of God to our lives? How do we make forward progress in our thoughts and in our desires and in our ambitions and our habits and our practices because of what God has said? How do I bring about change in my life that's due to what God has said? How do I live out what God has said? That's what we want to talk about tonight in this final session. And I want to begin with the scripture that's probably at the very center of your Bible. If you just kind of open it at, in the middle, you'll probably come to the book of Psalms. And the longest psalm in the book of Psalms is Psalm 119. Uh, I want you to turn there for a moment. This will kind of begin our study. Psalm 119 is, you probably know, and actually a devotional on the Word of God. It's a unique psalm. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. You also probably notice that it's an alphabetic acrostic using the 22 letters of the Hebrew uh, alphabet. Aleph, for example, is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and that's the first section of Psalm 119. Bet is the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. That's the next section in Psalm 119. So the entire psalm that is about the Word of God is built in a Hebrew acrostic to describe to us the value of the Word of God. Uh, the psalm is, is anonymous as far as the author. We don't know who the author is, but it was somebody who was passionately devoted to the Word of God as the Word for life. For example, look at Psalm 119. We're not going to read the whole psalm. We're just going to read a few scattered verses. I just want you to notice how passionately he is committed to living out the Word of God. Not just reading it, but living it. Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By, what's that next word, church? By what? Living according to your word. That one verse is so important. How, how do we, by the way, that's good, that's good advice for an old man too, not just a young man. That's good advice for a young woman or an old woman. How do we keep our lives pure? The psalmist said, by living according to your word. That one verse is really all we need tonight. Because this is how your life is different. This is how you make forward progress in your thoughts. This is how you make forward progress in the desires that are within you. This is how you make forward progress in your ambitions. This is how you make forward progress in your habits or in your practices. And on and on the list would go. Just trying to live out what God says. How do we keep our lives pure? How are our lives going to change? How are they going to be different? By living according to your word. Another example is in verse 33. 
through verse 37. Teach me, O Lord, to follow your decrees, not just to know them, not just to read them. Teach me, O Lord, to follow them. Teach me, O Lord, to follow your decrees. Then I will keep them to the end. Give me understanding and I will keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Notice this emphasis that the psalmist, speaking to the Lord himself, writing out his prayer to God, asking God to help him keep the law and obey it. He says in verse 35, Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Turn my heart toward your statutes and not toward selfish gains. Why? Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life. Watch these last few words. According to your word. Preserve my life according to your word. I want to live it. Not just read it. One other uh, verse. uh, Or two other verses. One is verse 56. This has been my practice. I obey your precepts. This has been my practice. This is my habit. This is a good habit to have. This is a holy habit. This has been my practice. That is, I obey your precepts. That, if you can develop that practice, if you can develop that habit of obeying the Word of God, then your life is going to be different. You're going to make forward progress in your life. And finally, verse 112. Verse 112. My heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. My heart is set on this. This this is my heart's desire. This is what I have decided. This is what I have decided for me and the way I'm going to live my life. My heart is set on this. And here's what it is. Keeping your decrees to the very end. Now, the reason all of this is important is because I want you to hear me. The reason all this is important is because After we complete this study tonight, the enemy is going to whisper into your ear, you can't do this. You can't do all the stuff Keith talked about. It's too complicated. You don't have a seminary degree. You can't do this. I want you to know that lie is from the pit of hell. And that lie is designed to keep you from living God's word. Because the enemy knows that if you try to live God's word your life will be more like God and less like Him. Less like the enemy. J.I. Packer, the great theologian, said it best. He says, if I were the devil, one of my first aims would be to stop folks from digging into the Bible. I think he's right. So tonight, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at some practical steps of how you can dig into the Bible and live it out. We don't want to just dig into the Bible and learn something. We don't want to just dig into the Bible and read something. We want to dig in the Bible and live it out. Now, I would say to you, and please make sure you understand this, I would say to you that you cannot consciously apply every truth that's in the Bible. But you can consistently apply something from the Bible. So don't get so called up and so... Uh, stressed about, am I doing everything that I'm reading? No, just try to do something as far as living out the Word of God. Is there some area of my life where this particular truth is needed? So, in our remaining time, I want to give you nine questions to ask. Some of these you perhaps have heard of before, but we're going to take a little bit deeper. 
But as you come to the Word of God, there are nine applicational questions. If you want to write that down, nine applicational questions. Nine questions you, you can ask any text that will help you to live out the Word of God and not just read it. Here's the first one, and you've probably heard this first one before, but again, we're going to try to go a little deeper with it. Here's the first one. Is there an example for me to follow? That is, as you're reading the Word of God, ask yourself this question. Is there an example for me to follow? There won't, there won't always be an example for you to follow, but it's a good question to ask. Any text, is there an example to follow? You may have noticed how much of the Bible is biographical. And I believe that's by design. That's not an accident. God fills His Word with people because nothing helps us understand truth better than watching how people live it out. So a lot of the Bible is biographical. Now the challenge, of course, is to draw a parallel between your situation and the situation of somebody in the Old Testament or even in the New Testament. One example of this would be in the book of Genesis. Would you take God's Word and would you go to Genesis chapter 18? Genesis chapter 18. In Genesis 18, the story is that in the middle of chapter 18, the heading in my Bible says, Abraham pleads for Sodom. Are you there? Genesis chapter 18, verse 16. The Lord reveals to Abraham what he's about to do to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, where Abraham's nephew Lot currently lived at that time with his family. And if you know the story, if we took the time to read the whole story, Abraham begins to plead with God to spare the people who live there. It's interesting how, it, how the story unfolds. Uh, look what it says. <clears throat> um, let's start in verse 23. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are how many people, church? Fifty righteous people in the city. Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the fifty righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, if I find fifty righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find 45 people there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him, what if only 40 are found? And he goes, we're not going to take the time to read all that, but he continues this conversation with God until he gets down to 10 people. What if only 10 people can be found? Would you spare the city for those 10 people? Now, I would say to you, I've been pastoring now for almost 35 years, and and I can't remember very many times where somebody has come to me and said, Pastor, God told me he's going to destroy such and such a city unless we can find 10 people who live there. I haven't had that experience. So if we're reading the Word of God, and we come to it with this question, is there an example for me to follow? How do we bridge that gap between the days of Abraham and our day? Is there an example for me to follow here? Does that mean that I don't have anything that I could do with this text at all? No, let me tell you. 
What do you see Abraham doing? Abraham is an outstanding example of a compassionate person praying on behalf of wicked people. Abraham was pleading to God on behalf of wicked people. He's on his knees begging God to spare them from judgment. Is there an example for me to follow? Yes. The example is not necessarily that I'm praying over a particular city. God, if there's 35 righteous people in Greenville, will you spare the city? I I won't pray that way. But I might pray for the wicked people or those that are lost who live there. So is there an example for me to follow? Number two, is there a sin to avoid? Is there a sin to avoid? Let me ask you a question. How many of you have been a Christian for at least 25 years? Raise your hand. At least 25 years. All right. A lot of you. Not all of you, but a lot of you. You've gotten used to the concept of what is sin and what is not. When you haven't been a Christian very long, when, when all of a sudden you're, you're not a Christian, but now you, you are one, you've got an altogether different standard of what's right and wrong now that you are a Christian. You've got a completely different standard of what's right and what's wrong. And, and what happens is, as you read the Scriptures, you begin to realize, wow, I didn't know that was a sin. I didn't know that was something I was supposed to avoid. I remember in one of the books I was reading, this guy said, you know, before I got saved, I thought I had a pretty good marriage. He said, but then I got saved and I started reading Ephesians chapter 5 about how a husband should treat his wife. He said, then I realized how lousy I was as a husband. He had a totally different perspective. And so my point is, if you've been in church a long time, you can sometimes lose the concept that this is sin. So as you're reading the scripture, ask yourself, is there a sin to avoid? Is there something in the text that's indicating a sin that should not be in my life? Again, there will not always be a clear answer to that, but it is one question you can ask every text. Number three is this. Is there a promise to claim? Is there a promise to claim? God's Word is filled with promises. Promises that were made by the God who does not lie. Who is capable of fulfilling everything He has said. But this is where you need to listen carefully. When you're asking the question, is there a promise to claim? You need to understand that not all the promises of Scripture are given to you and me. Right? God made certain promises only to certain people, especially in the days of the Old Testament. And God made some promises only to a certain group of people like the nation of Israel. So this is one area where you need to be careful, but it's still a valid question. Is there a promise for me to claim? Let me tell you some of the promises you can claim. Any of the promises that are made for the church, for the people of God, And those promises that are made for the righteous in the wisdom literature, like in the book of Proverbs. It it gives all kinds of promises to those who try to live righteous. Those are promises you can claim. So let me give you a couple of examples to help you understand what we're talking about. Uh, Romans chapter 8, promise that I know that you are familiar with. Romans chapter 8, 
Verse 28, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That is a promise to the church. And it's very clear, this is a promise to the church. It is a promise you can claim. James chapter 1, verse 5 is another one. Does any man like wisdom? If he does, let him ask of God who gives freely. That's a promise to the church. A promise you can claim. Now, some of the promises of the Old Testament, you can claim those as well. You just need to be careful about, is this a promise only to the nation of Israel? Or is it a promise to all of God's people? Does that make sense? You have to be discerning sometimes. And sometimes it's hard to to know for sure. But the question is, is this a promise only for a particular person? For example, Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham. Through you and through your seed, I'll bless the nations. God didn't make that promise to anybody else. God made that promise to Abraham and to his descendants. That's not a promise to you. It's not a promise to me. So as you're reading, especially the Old Testament, is this a promise to claim? Is it a promise only to them, or is it a promise for all of God's people? Number four. I like number four. Is there a prayer to repeat? Is there a prayer to repeat? I have been using this in my personal quiet time. I'm not going to tell you what prayer I've been praying, but in the last three weeks or so, there is a particular psalm that I have been praying in my quiet time. And what I have found is, just in reading the scriptures, uh, when you're asking those kind of questions, is there a prayer to repeat? I found a prayer in one of the psalms, and when I saw it, I thought, I need to pray that too. Not only is this a psalm for the psalmist, this is a psalm for me, or a prayer for me. Um, So is this a prayer to repeat. Let me give you some big prayers. That you write these down if you're taking notes. Study some of the great prayers in Scripture, and you might want to start praying them, okay? So let me give you some of the great prayers of Scripture that you can study and that you can incorporate into your own prayer life and into your own study. First of all, uh, David's prayer of confession in Psalm 51. David's prayer of confession in Psalm 51. Hannah's prayer of thanksgiving after the birth of her son, 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10. Hannah's prayer of thanksgiving, 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10. This one might surprise you. Jonah's prayer from the belly of the fish in Jonah chapter 2. Mary's prayer in Luke 1, verses 46 through 55. Paul's prayer for the Ephesians in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. I've prayed that prayer many times. There's another one in Colossians. I, don't, I can't remember the, the reference right now, but there's another one in Colossians. But Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46. And of course, the Lord's Prayer, which is found in Matthew 6. Uh, Verses 5 through 15. All of these, and that's not an exhaustive list, it's an example of the prayers that are found in the Bible. And as you're studying the Bible and you notice that there's a this person is praying a prayer, is there a prayer that I can repeat? Is there a prayer that I can incorporate in my prayer life? And I told you already that I'm doing that with a particular psalm. And most days, not every day, but most days, I'm going to that particular psalm and I'm praying that prayer. And it's really helped me uh, in my own personal life. 
So this is a good question to ask as you go to the Word of God. Is there a prayer to repeat? Number five. Again, we're just talking about application. How do we live out the Word of God? Number five. Another question is this. Is there a command to obey? The Bible is filled with powerful, clear-cut commands. In fact, did you know that there are 54 commands in the book of James alone? The book of James is a short book, and yet in that one book there are 54 commands. Let, let me give you a few examples. Would you go to the book of James? <clears throat> Find chapter 1. James chapter 1. Look at verse 22. Do not, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Live it out. That's a command in the book of James, chapter 4. Chapter 4, the book of James, chapter 4, verse 13 through 16. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Or you don't even know what will happen t- tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, and here's the command, instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Is there a a command to obey? Uh, Let me give you some some places in Scripture where this would be so easy to find. Uh, The applicational sections of Paul's letters. Paul, many times in his letters, he would the first part of the letter is all about doctrine. This is what we believe. And then it's about application. This is how we live it out. So the applicational section of, of many of Paul's letters, if you're taking notes, for example, Romans chapters 12 through 15, Galatians chapters 5 and 6, Ephesians chapters 4 through 6, Colossians chapters 3 through 4. Those are just some examples of areas where as you're reading the Scripture, you should be asking yourself, is there a command to obey? And in those applicational letters of Paul or the sections that are application, all kinds of commands to obey. A wise old scholar was once asked how to determine the will of God. How do you determine the will of God? Somebody asked him that. His response was very simple. He said 95% of the will of God is revealed in the commands of Scripture. If you'll spend your time attending to those, you won't have much trouble trying to figure out the other 5%. 95% of the will of God is found right here. Just try to live that. And then you'll figure out the other 5%. That's pretty good counsel. Question number six is this. Is there a condition to meet? Is there a condition to... Many of the promises of God are based on conditions that are set forth in the text. Would you go to John chapter 15? I'll give you an example. John chapter 15. Jesus is speaking and he says in verse 7, If you obey... I'm sorry. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. Is there a condition to meet in that verse? Yes. Look at the first word, the word if. This is a conditional promise. Here's the condition. If you abide in me, and if my words abide in you. That's the condition. Then, here's this incredible promise. Ask whatever you wish, and it'll be done for you. So as you're reading Scripture, come to the Scripture with that question. 
Is there a condition to meet? And again, sometimes there won't be. But it's always a good question to ask. Number seven, is there a verse to memorize? Obviously, any verse of Scripture can be memorized, and any verse of Scripture would be profitable, but some carry more significance to you than others. Uh, I'm not the best at this, but recently I've started memorizing uh, some verses uh, just this past week, I was, I was working on some verses, and again, I, I don't want to portray that I do that a lot because I don't, but I, I was in a particular passage of Scripture, and when I read that particular passage of Scripture, uh, all of a sudden it's like, man, I need that, and I don't just need it right now in my quiet time. I need to carry that verse with me. And sometimes I carry it in my pocket, I put it on a 3 by 5 card, and I carry it in my pocket, but sometimes I try to carry it here. I try to carry it in my heart, in my head. I try to remember it so I can think about it throughout the day. So I, here's a good question. Is there a verse to memorize? Again, I want to say there, uh, there's not a wrong answer here. But as you come to, a, to a, a passage of Scripture, if there is one verse and, it, and it's like God highlighted that for you, it's like God put His finger on it and said, did you see that? You need that. You need to remember that. So ask yourself, because you're trying to live it out, right? Trying not just to read it, you're trying to live it out. So if you're trying to live it out, is there a verse that I need to memorize so that I can do a better job of living it? See, that's why I've been trying to memorize the verses that I referred to just a minute ago because I'm not trying to just read them, I'm trying to live it. And I've found that many times I need to remind myself throughout the day what that verse is. I need to remind myself what that verse says. I need to remind myself what that verse means. And I don't always have a Bible with me, believe it or not. I don't always have it right there in my hands. And so, if I have that verse here, it helps me to live it out. So, is there a verse to memorize? Number eight, is there an error to mark? Now, I don't want you to be confused by this one, but write that down and let me explain it to you. Is there an error to mark? I don't mean, is there an error in Scripture? I don't believe there are errors in Scripture. I believe that Scripture is the infallible, inerrant Word of God. So I'm not saying, as you're reading the Bible, don't ask, are there any errors here in the Bible? I'm asking this question, are there any errors in me? Have I misread that passage before? That's what you're asking. Uh, you come to a passage and you've read it over and over and over and all of a sudden you, you see it differently now. You see something you didn't notice before. Is there an error to mark? Is there something I look at it and think, man, I've been, I've been misreading that. I, I need to understand that better. Many Christians kind of have fuzzy thinking about some of Scripture. Fuzzy memory about what that Scripture says. When you're reading the scripture, is there an error to mark? Do I need to note that I have not remembered that correctly? Do I need to note that I have not been interpreting that correctly? Is there an error to mark? The classic example, the classic example of this would be First uh, Peter. I'm sorry, First Timothy, chapter six, verse ten. You don't have to turn there, but I bet you can almost quote it if I get started. First Timothy, chapter six, verse ten says, "For the love of money." is, yeah, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But you know that many people have misread that verse or misquoted that verse. 
They quote it this way. In fact, I looked it up today, and I saw it quoted. It said, and the author said, some people shorten the verse this way. Money is the root of all evil. That's not what the Scripture says. That's not what that verse is teaching. The verse does not say money is the root of all evil. That verse is saying the root or the love of money is the root of all evil. So is there an error to mark? Have I been misreading that verse? Have I been thinking about it wrong? All right. Um, That was number eight, right? All right, the last one is this. Is there a challenge to face? Is there a challenge to face? What I mean by that is, you come to some verses, and God challenges you with that verse, and you just need to face it, that this is God trying to change something in your life. Is there a challenge to face? Can I give you an example of that in Philippians chapter 2? Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 verse 14 is one of those convicting verses and one of those demanding verses. Philippians chapter 2 verse 14 says, Do everything without complaining or arguing. Anybody complain this week? Maybe, I'm not going to ask you if you argued with anybody this week. The Bible says do everything without complaining or arguing. I don't know about you, I I just assume we go from verse 13 to verse 15. I'd be real happy with that. It would be nice if we could just kind of vote on it and say all in favor, let's take verse 14 out, all in favor. But we don't get that opportunity. God gives us this challenge. God says do everything, not some things. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Now, that may seem inconsequential to you in some ways. Well, that's just a small little verse. It's just a small... That may seem inconsequential, but can I say to you, there is nothing inconsequential about the changes that God wants to bring about in your life. There is nothing inconsequential about the changes God wants to bring about in your life or in mine. And if you're reading the Scripture and you bump into a verse, or maybe I should say it this way, if you're reading the Scriptures and there's a verse that punches you in the gut, is there a challenge to face? Is God bringing me face to face with a verse saying, this needs to change in you real quickly? I will close with a quote from Dr. Howard Hendricks. Dr. Hendricks was a great Bible teacher, Dallas Theological Seminary. He's in heaven now. Uh, One of the greatest teachers you would ever, ever hear. And Dr. Hendricks made this statement. I'm going to use it in closing this this, uh, lesson. He said, remember that the Word of God experienced is the Word of God enjoyed. The Word of God experienced. It's the Word of God enjoyed. It's good to read your Bible. But don't just read your Bible. Ask those nine questions of any text 
and try to live your Bible. Because the Word of God experienced is the Word of God enjoyed. Amen? God bless you. Thank you for being so patient and so faithful. Have a good evening. Thank you.